This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. This is Case Closed, back this Wednesday with another hour of old-time radio crime stories. We'll hear first this week from Barry Craig, confidential investigator, with his episode from August 17, 1954, titled Midsummer Lunacy. After that, it's This Is Your FBI and the Waterfront Felons, their story from December 2, 1949. William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Sudden loss of weight might be cause for anxiety, but one good thing at least, it makes the pallbearer's job a whole lot lighter. The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. Once every year, an epidemic of lunacy sweeps across the nation. Some call it midsummer madness. You get sunstroke by day and moonstruck by night. I got my dose of it in a resort hotel. Jubilee Villa, the big neon sign across the roof said. Jubilee Villa, where days were given to pinochle and golf, and nights were given to lawn dancers under big sheltering pines. Like everybody else, I was dancing. Unlike everybody else, I had a genuine, non-dyed, natural blonde babe in my arm. Oh, you danced divinely, Barry. Hmm. You'd only put that in writing, Blondie. In writing? I collect testimonials. Oh. <laughs> Blondie was a vacation guest with a ruby mouth and a slim, trim panatella chassis. Not an extra ounce of butterfat or chocolate bonbon anywhere on her. The name she gave was Linda Paris. I was kicking my heels at Jubilee Villa at Linda's own request. She'd phoned me to please come. What she had on her lovely mind, I didn't know yet. I was uh, too busy totaling up what she had on the outside. Well, I suppose the time has come to talk, Barry. Cruel words. You've probably been wondering why I telephoned you and dragged you up here. I stopped wondering after the second highball. Uh, down that path there, there's a, there's a grape arbor. We can be alone there. You've enticed me. Only to talk about my problem. Oh. I really do have a problem, Barry. Yeah, I know, with men. You've had that same one problem since the age of three, I'll bet. But leave us sojourn. A gray barber under the moon with a bewitching blonde at hand means all things to all men. But to a confidential cop, it only means work. Police work. You have facilities for finding out about people. I do. Now, who do you want to find out about? Stuart Stoner. Who's he? A guest here at the hotel. So you want a confidential police check on him? Yes. I want to do the conservative thing before I... Before getting too enmeshed? Before getting engaged. And you're afraid Stuart is a low-down fortune hunter. Is that the nub of it? Oh. Well, he led me to believe that he, too, is rich. I'm assigned... What are the vital statistics on Stuart Stoner? Hometown, family, business, etc., and so forth. I know nothing except that his people are supposed to be in Milwaukee society. You'll know more when I'm through. Milwaukee, here I come. One thing about a long train ride, catch up on your back reading. Came the day after tomorrow, I returned to Jubilee Villa, full of news from Milwaukee. Bad news for Blondie. It's, it's all so incomprehensible to me. Then let me repeat myself. There is no Stoner family in Milwaukee society and no young aristocrat named Stuart Stoner. Then Stuart is a masquerader. It would seem. And so are you, too, a masquerader, Blondie. I checked both ends of the matrimonial question mark. I'm a bug for thoroughness. Linda Paris of Brockton, Massachusetts. No such she-animal. Now, what's the real name, Blondie? Mary Ranseroff. A working girl. A wage slave. Department store ribbon counter? I'm a manicurist. You're putting on quite a big show here at Jubilee Villa. Where'd you get the wardrobe? And the $55 a day? 
My savings. Your pitch to snag a rich husband. It's just as easy to love a rich man. Touche. All right, assignment completed. Pay me off and kiss me goodbye. No. No? I still want to know about Stuart. Like you, he's fortune hunting. Oh. Well, I... Well, you see... You go for him. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding. Okay, then. I'll stick around a while. On the day I go, you can call me the guy who murdered Cupid. I didn't buck Stuart Stoner right away. I made a study of him first from afar. Watched his behavior like a guinea pig behind glass. A guinea pig with a pencil-lined mustache. I watched him whack a tennis ball. Well, a nace. I joined in the gallery applause. I watched him elbow up to the oval bar in the cafe lounge. Much too green in the gills for an athlete and a haunted look around his eyes, like sleep came tough. And ordering the type of drink guaranteed to drown anyone's sorrow. Steve, another one of the same. A double. I watched him playing cards in the casino. A two-handed game for stakes that could lift the national debt in Pongo Pongo. Well, that beats me. Guess it's not my night. Well, better luck tomorrow. That's what you said yesterday. Uh, I'm afraid I'm a little short of cash. Check is fine, Stoner. And if you're overdrawn at the bank, an IOU's just as good. (laughs) $6,000 loss for the afternoon's play. But what made it especially interesting for me was the face of the winner. I knew the face. I'd seen it around on the streets and in the rogues gallery. Lou Latimer, a con man, card shop, and plain crook. The question I asked myself was, why was a card shop accepting IOUs from a phony vacationer posing as a son of wealth? Latimer worked like a cop worked. He checked the pedigree of every sucker he sat down to cards with. Latimer had to know that Stuart Stoner was a made-up name. So why was Latimer accepting paper instead of cash? That evening, after a supper orgy of boshed and baked herring, I tackled Stuart Stoner in person. He was sprawled on a hammock, letting the supper digest. Evening. Hello. Craig's the name. Barry Craig. You, uh, don't feel sociable? Frankly, I don't. That's a surprise. Why is it surprising? I've watched you around the clock. Tennis, cards, and chit-chat. I've seldom seen a more gregarious and sociable guy. Well, maybe it's a question of the kind of company. That remark meaning? You interpret it. You draw the line where I'm concerned. Now, if you don't mind... You want to be alone. Look, Mr. Craig, I've an absolute right... Don't let your thermometer rise, Buster. Who warned you off me? Why, Why do you say that? Because that's my guess about our unfriendly little situation. So who was it? Oh, a friend of mine... Your card partner, Latimer? What did Latimer tell you? That I was an unsavory character or something? You're very astute. All right, he warned me that you were, well, some kind of operator. Underhanded, a type that... Works vacation resorts. Words to that effect, yes. (laughs) What have I now told you Latimer was describing himself? I'd expect you to say that. You would? Latimer also told me you'd lie if trapped, that you'd reverse everything, that you were clever like that. Look, Buster, Latimer's a card shop and a crook. And let's settle a question of my veracity once and for keeps. I'm a detective. Here, squint your eyes at my credentials. The uh, badge is authentic? Did Latimer also warn you that I'd flash a phony chicken inspector's badge? I'm, I'm confused. So am I. What particularly confuses me is why a smart boy like Latimer would collect your worthless IOUs. My worthless... You're here using an alias. The name Stuart Stoner is made up. You've been handing a doll named Linda Paris a line of bunk. You let the impression circulate that you're loaded, filthy rich. But the odds are 100 to 1 you haven't even got cash enough to pay your board bill. You were saying? I have nothing to say. Don't please heckle me anymore. I'm, I'm spinning... Yeah, you are. In a steaming sweat. Your eyes rolling. You subject to fits? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no. No, no fits. Just just every now and then a feeling of suffocation. Like like now I, I blank, blank out. Stoner. 
Blank out, he did dig. Eyes staring blindly and not a flutter to him, hardly a pulse. And his face contorted in ugly red folds, like it was an outside picture of some deep agony inside. I left him as he was and went for help. The house doctor had been gone for almost 20 minutes before Stoner could put words together coherently. Uh, Please, don't broadcast what you saw tonight. You seem to slip into a fog then, Stoner. I got the feeling your eyes were seeing sights you were trying to shut out. My eyes were seeing sights? The eyes of memory, let's say. Like you were looking over your shoulder into yesterday. Like you were an amnesiac. What's in yesterday that gets you by the throat, Stoner? Oh, you're you're talking talk I don't understand. Stuart Stoner, you call yourself. What's your right name? Some other time, huh? If you insist on this sort of weird interrogation right now, I, I just, I just want to go to bed. Want help getting upstairs? No, no, I want nothing from you. I'll help Stuart to his room. Hello, Stuart. Oh, Margot. The house doctor told me you'd fainted. I came as soon. Introduce as I... me, Stoner. Uh, Mr. Craig, Margot Swift. Hello. Mr. Craig. You want him, ladies? All yours. Margot, if I can just have your arm. I watched them move away slowly her arm around his waist and a love light in her eyes. A tightly trussed look to her figure, cold black hair, colored gypsy kerchiefs around her neck, and a look of experience to her. Older than Stuart, but you'd need her birth certificate to prove it. She was that preserved. Linda and Margot, blonde and brunette. Stoner was doing okay with the ladies. A while later, in my room, while wrestling with a knot in my tie as a prelude to showering before bed, I found a typewritten note propped against my bureau mirror. The management regrets the need to terminate your stay due to a prior reservation made for room 211. Room 211 was my room. There was a deadline noted on the bottom of the eviction note. We would appreciate possession of room 211 by 9 p.m. 9 p.m. was one minute away. Correction, it was 9 p.m. I acted calm in the emergency. I tore up the note. That night, I had a crazy dream. I dreamed there was a load of iron hanging from the ceiling like a chandelier, hanging on a line with my head, ready to drop if the length of wire holding it ever snapped. I lay there making book the wire wouldn't snap. I was wrong. It did snap. When the iron dropped, I promptly stopped dreaming. (laughs) Wake up from a midsummer's night's dream. You can find yourself in strange surroundings. I imagine I found myself on the bottom of a lake. But that was too crazy even for midsummer. What was a fact was, I... The lake lay around me only ankle height. I was plopped in reeds that were taller than me. The kind of reeds you find around the edge of country lakes. I had water in my nose and ears. And a stagnant pool of slop in my stomach. If I survived, I'd need a stomach pump. I lay where I was, listening to owl hoots. The owl had hooted himself hoarse before I became aware of the lump on my head. What had actually happened dawned on me very slowly. I'd been slugged senseless in room 211, carried to a nearby lake and tossed in. Attempted murder. Somebody was very careless about whether I lived or died. When I was up to it, I had questions to put to the friendly management of Jubilee Villa. The guy managing Jubilee Villa looked like a wax museum exhibit. Skin you'd hate to touch unless you were a fellow zombie. And horn-rimmed glasses with lenses so thick his eyes magnified into the size of golf balls. A brass nameplate on the desk read Otto Henser. His attitude towards me was downright contemptuous. 
Mr. Craig, you expect me to give credence to this fantastic story. I do expect. Mr. Craig, you suffer from sunstroke. I wear a visor cap in the sun. Well, then it is too much to drink. A man with your imagination should never drink. I've been on buttermilk since I arrived here. Look, Hanser, I don't imagine being slugged and thrown into a lake. Well, then at least thank your stars that you are alive. No fault of my assailants. My guess there is he didn't figure I'd land in a shallow bed. Then you insist on this preposterous story. At the top of my lungs. Someone in Jubilee Villa resents my being around. I'm a meddler. There's some scheme afoot and... Wait. Yes, Mr. Craig. The management of Jubilee Villa, that's you, wanted me out of the place at 9 p.m. tonight. Why, Hanser? A prior reservation for room 211. Sure that's the only reason? It is the reason, of course. I didn't comply with the vacate request. I went to bed, and from there I was forcibly evicted. I woke up in the lake. Mr. Craig, there is no connection between our simple request that you give up your room in this, this hallucination. I'm getting awfully tired of you insinuating I'm a nut. All right, then. I will accept your story. And your explanation of it on that basis? A prowler. There have been other incidents, come to think of it. A, a trespasser entered your room. You were assaulted. And carried a half mile from my room to the lake. Mr. Craig, the criminal mind is something unpredictable. There, there is no logical pattern. Paul, you've sure been trying to sell me one idea after another, Hanser. Why? Because I'm perplexed. Like you are perplexed. I think one thing and then I think another. I see. Right now, Hanser, I'm thinking one thing. And what is that? That you could be a grade A 14 carat phony. The next day, I let the con man in card shop Blue Latimer tell me a few lies. Man has a right to live down his past, Craig. No question. I had a few brushes with the law once. Sure, I don't deny it. You served a few sentences? One sentence. Pardon the slander. I'm a changed man today, pillar of the community. San Quentin community? Oh, the way you cops love to ride a guy. Beastly of us. Look, I'm a respectable businessman today. What business? Uh, salesman. Selling bunco? Machine tools. What are you doing here at Jubilee Villa? Vacationing. With a deck of cards in every pocket? I don't play cards the same old way. Meaning? I play for pastime. For profit. So I play to win. Who doesn't? Which brings me to a basic question. What? An IOU. I saw Stuart Stoner give you a $6,000 piece of paper. I won it fairly. Even supposing you did. How come you're accepting paper from a masquerader? A what? A masquerader. The name Stuart Stoner is an alias. The young man is here representing himself fraudulently. Now, wait a minute, Craig. Stoner's loaded. He's from a rich clan. The Stoner's in Milwaukee. He is not. That's only a cardboard front. Stoner is a phony. And you know it, Latimer. How would I know it? Because that's how you operate. Before skinning a sucker, you check every detail of his pedigree back to the day he was born. You know how much he's worth or how little, so you can judge how much to take him for. Well? Well, what you say is a fact that Stone is a phony, then I, I've been rooked, huh? I'm holding worthless paper. <laughs> well, that's on me, huh? It would appear. But I still wonder... Latimer. What? See the giant egg built in in my skull? Up here? Looks nasty. Want to claim credit for it? Oh, the way you try to cut me down. You've some surface polish. You look distinguished in your Bermuda shorts. But you're a mug underneath and a thug. Look, chum, if this heckling session is over... I've got another insult, killer. Killer? Until you convince me otherwise, I'll go on thinking you tried to drown me last night. So long. One minute, Latimer. Now what? A token of my very high regard for you. <laughs> Love either conquers all or it surrenders. My client, Linda Paris, born plain Mary Ranzelhoff, ran up the white flag. I'm leaving for home after dinner tonight. Goodbye to Jubilee Villa. Yes, I'm already in packed. Say goodbye to Stoner yet? Oh, we had a long talk over breakfast. And the gist of it? He admitted to having assumed the name of Stuart Stoner. What is his real name? He couldn't say. Barry, he didn't seem to know. Really offering himself as an amnesiac, huh? Look, Blondie, 
I'm here on your account. I can't follow your example, pack up, scram, and forget. Leave everything unresolved. I'm a cop, at heart and by profession. I want to know who, what, and why is alias to his donor. I want to know what Lou Latimer's game is and where the management, Otto Hansa, fits into the scheme. And Margot. Oh, I'm glad you brought her up. What about the lady Margot? She and Stuart were close when I first arrived. I suppose I cut Margot out. Stuart began to chase me. Well, I can't blame him there. I've seen Margot in clandestine meetings with that man Latimer down at Pripet Lake. Anything else you've tucked away in your lovely mind as a significant detail? Oh, yes. Henser kept trying to involve me with other male guests as if he... To preserve Stoner for Margot in line with a three-way partnership. Otto Henser, Latimer, and Margot. I don't understand. A three-way scheme connotes loot, wolves sharing a lamb. But where's the possible profit in Stuart Stoner? What's the bait for Henser, Latimer, and Margot? Stoner's a phony and masquerader, a deadbeat. Maybe Henser, Latimer, and Margot don't actually know Stoner's a masquerader. If they didn't know, impossible to believe as that is, if they suckered themselves in some attempted badger game, they do know now. I told Latimer that Stoner was a phony. Now, do you want to quit or follow through? All right, what do we do? Search every inch of Stoner's room and effects. You play lookout while I play burglar. The results of searching Stoner's effects were a little frightening. Later, in a woodsy hideout, Linda and I shivered over what we found. Barry, it's fantastic. Lengths of copper wire, all cut down to convenient size. The tools of a strangler. I, I just can't believe then it. Then try believing Stoner's amazing collection of newspaper clippings. These. Mystery Strangler Terrorizes East End. Dateline, Minneapolis. And this one. Strangler Claims Elderly Victim. Dateline, Seattle. And these similar clippings. Dateline, New York, Boston, Shreveport. For one man, too. Operate east, north, west, and south all over the map. Yes, the scope of it. But this isn't one man's autobiographic collection of himself. It isn't? The dates on the clips cover almost four years. They represent a lot of stranglings and a lot of stranglers. A lot of stranglers. Some of whom have been caught and jailed. I recognize a few of the cases. Then? This is just a collection of clippings. Fetish is the word, I think. The pleasure the collector, call him psychopath, gets uh, comes from the clippings themselves, let's say. The joy in some other fellow's crime. Stuart is a madman. It would appear... A madman or... Or... That's what somebody wants us to think. Mainly wants you to think. Me? So you'd scream and run, glad to escape a fate worse than... All this is part of a scheme? Well, that's my surmise. But what basis do you have? The character of Hensa, Latimer and Company. Thoroughgoing connivers who play to win. They knew the cop and me would sooner or later send me up to Stoner's room. This stuff was planted for me to find. Enough to disillusion me in Stoner, but not enough to pinch him. No real evidence of a crime or an actual criminal personality. What now? Well, let Henser, Latimer and company horse themselves into believing they hold trumps. That you're scared off. That I'm disinterested in any further to do with a nut. We make our fond farewells. We leave Jubilee Villa? Officially only. Unofficially, we're still around. We're holed up somewhere with our eye on this place, watching to see the next move of the gang against Stoner. But what can they want of Stuart? I finally come to the conclusion about that. One, Stoner is an amnesiac. Isn't sure of who he is and where from, etc. Two, he is not a poor masquerader, but a rich one after all. Stuart, rich? Uh-huh. Doe, position. And a good marital catch for Margot. Also profitable game for Latimer to account for the IOUs. Also a Klondike for Henser. Otherwise, there'd be no reason at all for a plot. Well, that means they know Stuart's true identity. They do, but Stuart doesn't. So will you join me in hiding, doll? Where do you hide with a blonde? <laughs> Not being able to find a treehouse, we settled for an auto camp a quick two miles from Jubilee Villa, adjoining cabins. 
After two days of keeping Jubileeville under surveillance, we finally got a look at how Henser, Latimer, and Margot planned to play their trump card. The kind of trap they had baited for a weak-minded stoner. Sweet music in the cool of the evening piped into the grape arbor. The grape arbor set with intimate tables, a canopy of freshly cut flowers, a few picked guests, and the local parson. A marriage was taking place. Margot and Stoner, with Latimer and Henser there to give the bride away. You're not going to let them get married. Shouldn't I? Shouldn't? Oh, Barry, you're teasing. Shh. I'll stop it, Blondie, but only at a strategic moment. The strategic moment came. The man in the high collar was reaching the end of his text. If any man knows some reason why this pair should not be joined in the bonds of matrimony, let him now speak. Speaking, stop the wedding. <laughs> I'd played cop at Jubilee Villa fine, but I hadn't played Cupid so good. Linda left in my company, as it turned out, and not in Stuart Stoner's. That is, alias Stuart Stoner. Stuart is really Fabian Carlyle. So Latimer confessed. The Carlyles of Honolulu. Big shipping family. Will his amnesia... Might disappear, might reoccur. I'm not a doctor. Oh, I suppose I'll always regret it. Letting the rich one get away? Yes. So why did you? Stoner looked like he could be coaxed all over again. Oh, I'm sure I'll regret it. Want a last piece of advice? What, Barry? When you marry, have eight kids. With eight kids around, Dow, you're too busy for regrets. You have been listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama... From the adventures of Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. Tonight's story, Midsummer Lunacy, was written by John Robert. Next week, it's the strange story of blood money, about which Barry Craig has this to say. In next week's story, Blood Money, an oriental rug dealer finds himself as snug as a bug in a casket when a killer comes calling with gold in his eye. Good night, folks. See you next week. The National Broadcasting Company has just brought you an NBC Radio Network production with William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, directed by Arthur Jacobson. Also heard Hilary Hall as Linda, Alice Backus as Margot, Tony Barrett as Latimer, George Neese as Stewart, and Herb Ellis as Henser. Eddie King speaking. Within the next 20 seconds, a fire will break out somewhere in the United States. Lives may be lost, property damaged, homes or buildings destroyed. Yes, there are 4,600 fires in America each day of the year. They kill 11,000 persons and disfigure or severely burn thousands more. The unfortunate part of this picture is that most of these fires could have been avoided. For example... 90% of all fires which start in the home can be traced to human carelessness. By obeying a few simple rules of fire prevention from now on, you and I can protect ourselves and our families from this devastating menace. Rule one is don't smoke in bed or discard lighted cigarettes carelessly. Rule two, clean out old newspapers, magazines, and other inflammable debris. Rule three, promptly repair defective wiring as soon as you notice it. Fire won't wait until tomorrow. Rule four, use only those cleaning fluids which will not burn. And last but not least, be careful with matches. Keep them out of the reach of small children. Remember, it doesn't pay to gamble with fire. The odds are against you every time. 
There's another exciting Dragnet adventure tonight on most NBC radio stations. The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents This is Your FBI. This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, transcribed and presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Now I should like to introduce a representative of our sponsor. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Your future is his business. Security in years to come for you, your home, and your family. Yes, your future is in good hands when you entrust your life insurance program to a representative of the Equitable Life Assurance Society. I understand that about 10 million people are listening to my voice right now. Well, at least half of them want to be mothers and fathers. For those 5 million parents, we have a very important message tonight. It's about the Equitable Society's special fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers. Please listen carefully in about 14 minutes when Mr. Keating will be back to tell you more about this fact-finding chart. Available through the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Tonight's FBI file... The Waterfront Felon. Recently, in a West Coast city, a man was shot down in the street in full view of a woman who happened to be passing by, and also in view of passing traffic. When the accounts of the crime were printed in the newspapers... People all over the nation were shocked at the daring of the murder plan. They need not have been shocked, however. For even as that crime was taking place, others equally as daring were also being committed. And it seems safe to say that still others, possibly even more bizarre, were being planned for later execution. Among the seven and a half million people in this country who have fingerprint arrest records, there are many with fertile imaginations and sharp cunning. And they lay their plans as carefully as an army readies an attack on enemy territory. Nor is that comparison to an army merely an idle figure of speech. For these criminals, like an army, have scouts who move in front of them to pick likely places for attack. Scouts who record the movements of a watchman, the chances and best methods of escape, the location of any automatic alarms and how to put them out of order. Those reports are then brought back to headquarters for further study. Criminals who work in that fashion are difficult to apprehend, for they wait patiently, and they keep preparing and rehearsing until the proper moment comes. Then, they strike. Night's file opens on a large fishing boat which is cruising on one of the Great Lakes. It is late at night. A heavy fog lays over the water. A group of men are gathered in the cabin of this craft. They're listening attentively as one of their numbers speaks. I want you to listen real careful to what I'm going to tell you because I don't want to have to repeat it. Our job tonight's to take a dock. We're coming up to it now. There's ten crates on the dock. They're loaded with cameras. Could be a real good score. Have you all got your diagrams? Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, look at them. We're going to hand out assignments. You see the X in the lower right-hand corner there? Yeah. Yeah. That's the ladder we use to get up to the dock. Lou, you climb it wait till the watchman comes by. He makes a round of the whole place in eight minutes. Once he gets past, you give the sign. I go up, then you guys follow. Is that clear so far? Yes, sure. Yeah. All right. Now look in the center of the diagram. See the circle? Yeah. That's where the crates are. Uh, Turk. Yeah. You, Shorty, Johnson. Hit the pier and do the loading. Right. And Buck... Yep. You stay on deck. You operate the crane. It's a new one. Works the same as the old one did, but it lifts twice as much. Williams and Gailey will help you unload. You got it straight? Right. Now, if we have any trouble with the watchman, just keep on working. I can handle it. Webb. Yeah? They're coming to the pier. 
All right, men. Let's go to work. Next day at the local FBI field office, agent in charge Medford is seated at his desk as Special Agent Jim Taylor enters. Morning, sir. I'm Jim Taylor. Oh, good morning, Taylor. Glad to have you with us. Well, thank you, sir. When did you arrive? Oh, about half an hour ago. Uh-huh. Well, sit down. I'll explain why we had you transferred to this office. All right. Thank you, sir. Now, there's been a series of waterfront thefts recently all along the lake. We're convinced it's been the work of one very well-organized gang. I see. Have any of these thefts come under our jurisdiction? No, not until last night's job. They raided a pier, stole ten crates of cameras belonging to the Army. Any identification on these men? No. The few times any of them have been seen, they wore masks. How about the boat, sir? Well, it's been described as a fishing boat. We've checked all registrations. Nothing turned up. Sir, wouldn't a fishing boat be a little slow for a getaway? (laughs) From the way they roared away from jobs, I'd say they had a souped-up engine. We've got a lead on the boat, however. Oh, it's that. The police checked on boats at every fishing village on the north shore. One boat had been out each night, a dock had been raided, and those nights it had come in without any fish. Wow. Who owns that boat? A man called Slim Wilcox. His captain is one Harry Belmont. They also have a crew. Mm -hmm. Do we know anything about them? Yes, we checked. Wilcox and Belmont have criminal records. Have they been brought in for questioning? No. Why not, sir? Well, several reasons. First of all, their boathouse isn't large enough to hold their loot, so there'd be no evidence. What's more, they've been commercial fishermen for years, so they can justify their boat and their business. I see. What about the cameras, sir? They could be traced through the serial numbers. We've already sent out a list of them, but that'll take time. We just got a break that might lead to a faster solution. Oh, what's that? The diesel oil truck had a minor accident this morning on Route 53. The police picked up the driver, questioned him, and learned that the oil was on its way to Slim Wilcox. Hmm. Diesel oil for the boat. I think so, yes. In any case, the man who sold the oil is named Mac Franklin. We've sent a fake message from the driver of the truck saying the delivery would be delayed a couple of hours. That brings us to you, Taylor. You, uh, you want me to deliver the oil? Well, it would be a volunteer job. I know, sir. I'll do it. Good. You stand for me, sir? Yes, come in. Gene Douglas, Jim Taylor. Hi, Hi Jim. Glad to know you. Sit down, Douglas. I, uh, I've just been briefing Taylor on those dock jobs. Oh. Sir, uh, I assume Slim Wilcox has never seen the driver of the oil truck. No. Apparently, this Franklin hires drivers on a one-shot basis. Gives them a stolen truck. When the oil is delivered, the driver ditches the truck. Now, when you deliver the oil, I want you to try to find some way of getting into the Wilcox organization. I understand, sir. Uh, now where do I find Wilcox? He's in a village called Jamestown. We've gotten Douglas here. Job as a clerk in a cigar store up there. Huh? You'll communicate with the office through Douglas in the store. Yes, sir. Well, now go get some old clothes and we'll arrange to have you pick up the truck. All right, sir. And, uh, by the way, Danny Gray is the truck driver's name. From now on, Taylor, it's your name, too. Got a call from Sandoval. Now, what's with the truck? Got through, fine. Any deal on the cameras? Yeah. The fence off at 8,500. That's not enough. Yeah. Come in. Come in, Buck. What is it, Buck? There's a guy outside. Well, who is he? I don't know. All he said is he's got some oil. And I said, what kind of oil? And he said, diesel oil. Oh, that's the stuff from Mac Franklin. Oh, Harry, call Sandoval. Tell him we want... Ten G's for the cameras. Yeah, sure. Slim, what about this guy? He's got oil, diesel oil. Yeah, 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 I know. Okay, Buck, I'll see him. Hey, you the oil guy? Yeah. There's the truck. Right over for the tank. You Slim Wilcox? Uh-huh. Your tanks are locked. I can't unload I'll them. I'll unlock them. Come on. Okay. This top grade stuff? I don't know. I didn't heist it. Tell Franklin we had trouble with the last load, huh? Well, I won't be seeing him. No, why not? It's one way haul for me. When I unload here, I'm going to ditch the truck. Oh? Uh, you know anybody that could use it? Uh, the truck? Yeah. Uh-uh. But you know where a guy could catch on? No. 
Seems like I met up with a crap game on the way down here, and I got cleaned out. That's too bad. Ah, there we are. Both tanks are open. Um, here's a double saw for you. Should get you out of town. Look, I didn't want no hand there. Yeah, pay me back sometime. And when you get the oil unloaded, call Buck and he'll let you out. <laughs> You? Yeah, I, uh, I want some pipe cleaners. Yes, sir. Got some right here. Someone in the phone booth, Jim. Okay. Uh, how much are these? Uh, 30 cents. Get a shake for them? Mine? Dice here, 26. You know the game? Oh, yeah. yeah. Cost you a nickel a line. Okay, I'll roll you. What number do you want? Oh, uh, sixes. Three and one. Good night. Good night. Yeah, that's five and two. How'd you make out, Jim? I delivered the oil. Get a job? No, but I got some information. I, I talked to one of Slim's men. They're getting ready for another job. Yeah, when? I think tonight. Yeah. Any trace of the loot? No. No, and I didn't see any place where they could keep it. Hmm. If they're working tonight, we better put stage two in operation. Yeah, you better cut them. Well, that beats you, bud. Pay up. the men. We're ready to shove off. Okay. Harry? Yes, sir. What about the truck? We're all set. Now, you know where we make the meet? Yeah, Williamstown Bridge. That's right. Be there at 1130. If we don't show in half an hour, just pull away. Right. Hey! Hey, you guys! Who's that? I don't know. It's too hey, dark to see you. No, it's the guy that brought the oil. Slim, I gotta see you! We're busy right now! It's important! Blow, will you? What? We're gonna knock those guys off tonight! What? He said we're going to get knocked off. Yeah. Hey, come here! What'd you say about getting knocked off? The cops are out on the breakwater. They're going to search every fishing boat as it goes through. Where'd you get that? I ran into an old buddy of mine. He's got a way of knowing what goes on with cops. Told me the whole story, so I came right out here. How come you make me such a partner? I owed you one. What? You stake me to a double saw. Okay, I'm paying you back. Hey, Slim, there was a phone call just now from Big George. He said, is Slim gone? I said, I don't know. And he said, if he ain't, stop him. And I said, why? And he said, the cops are at the breakwater. And I said... Yeah, well, yeah, he, I know, Buck, I know. Uh, well, he said, when the cops finish out there, they're going to go through every boathouse on the shore. What for? Big George said, for boats with diesel engines in them. And I said, like ours? And he said, yes, and... I said, what should we do? Okay, Buck, okay. Uh, Harry, go cut off the motor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Buck, go get Joey. Tell him I want the motor taken out of the boat. Joey ain't around, Slim. What? He's out heisting a car for us to use tonight. Oh, yeah, that's right. You, uh, you need some help? What? I can get that motor out for you. The big diesel? Yeah. I did the same job two years ago in Detroit. Took the whole thing out inside of an hour. You get a yard if you can do it now. A hundred bucks don't interest me. And what does? I told you this afternoon. A job. Do this thing clean and you got one. We will return in just a moment to tonight's exciting case from the official files of your FBI. Now for a quick interview with a man who looks as if he didn't have a care in the world. A man who's going to tell us how he spent ten minutes filling in a fact-finding chart and got rid of a ten-year worry. That's absolutely correct, Mr. Keating. It was as simple as ABC. A, I asked my equitable representative for the fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers. B, he brought the chart and we filled it in. C, right away the ten-year worry started to do a disappearing act. And just what was that worry, Irv? Well, I guess it's one that's only too familiar to almost every father. It's when you say to yourself, if I die while my kids are still young, what happens? What income will my wife need to support them until they at least finish high school? Irv, 
Not one man in 50 really knows how much money his family would need to carry on without him. What they would require to maintain a decent standard of living until the children finish high school. That's where the equitable fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers comes into the picture. It gives you a sound and reliable basis on which to figure up the minimum expense. What's more, it's simplicity itself. Every step is made absolutely clear by easy-to-understand illustrations. Well, my wife and I really had fun filling it in. And when I got a trustworthy figure, I suddenly realized that there was something I could do about it. My equitable man showed me how to provide for the income my family would need at a price that didn't strain our present budget. One last question, Irv. How much did you pay for that chart? What do you mean, pay for it? Didn't cost a cent. Yes, this chart is just one of many services available from the Equitable Life Assurance Society. It costs you nothing and does not obligate you in any way. Just drop a hint to any representative of the Equitable Society and he'll be glad to see that you get a copy. Or send a postcard care of this ABC station to the Equitable Life Assurance Society. That's spelled E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. And now back to the FBI file, The Waterfront Felons. Tonight's case from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation is illustrative of how integral a part danger plays in the daily life of every special agent. The assignment given here to Agent Taylor, the assignment to infiltrate into a gang of thieves is not in itself so unusual as to be newsworthy. For even now, as you sit listening to this program, it is likely that there are other special agents who are likewise trying to work their way into the confidence of other gangs. Discovery of any of them by the criminals they are attempting to trap means almost certain death. Death such as has come to other agents in the line of duty. Because of that possibility, every special agent being given any such assignment is also given the opportunity of refusing it. For in a democracy, no man in time of peace may involuntarily be given a job which places his life in jeopardy. Knowing that... It also might interest you to know that of the thousands of similar assignments placed before special agents of your FBI since the founding of the Bureau, the record shows not a single instance of any refusal. A record which tells you how unlimited is the devotion to duty of every member of your FBI, of the lengths to which he will go in fulfilling his oath to protect you, the American people. Night's file continues at the FBI field office as Special Agent Douglas reports to Agent in Charge Medford. Well, what's the word from Taylor? He contacted me this afternoon, sir. What's he been doing? He reports to Slim Wilcox every morning, hangs around the boathouse till about three, then he's dismissed. Uh-huh. Any, uh, regular duties? No, sir. Any sign of them going into action? Well, they put the motor back in the boat, but that's all. Oh, uh, Taylor got a lead on the stolen goods. What is it? I heard one of the mob talking about the truck that took the loot to Centerville. Centerville? Well, that ties in. With what, sir? The police there raided a suspected fence this morning and found the cameras that were stolen from the government dock. Does this fence implicate the Wilcox mob? No, he isn't talking. The police up there don't think he will. Uh, you and Taylor just keep working. Report back to me as soon as there's any definite indication that the mob is going back into action. <laughs> Hi. Oh, hi, Buck. Where's the rest of the guy? Out back. Know anything about guns? Yeah, some. Know anything about cleaning them? Yeah. Well, that's a job we got to do right now. Uh Let's get them off the rack. Okay. Hey, that's real nice. Slim's got more of them on the boat. Uh This is kind of like a hobby with him. He stole every one of them. Uh, Buck, does this mean we're going to action? Oh, I don't know. Hi, boys. Oh, hello, Slim. Why don't you ask Slim? Ask me what? Oh, he wanted to know if uh, this meant we were going into action. Yeah, we work tonight. What do I do? You're with Harry. On the boat? 
Now, unloading when we come in. Huh? Where will that be? He'll find out. Well, how will I know where to meet you? Harry will bring you down on the car. We'll be here tonight at 8 o'clock. Ready to go. We're running a special on these pipes today, sir. Oh, I don't want anything. Will there be anything else? No, no, that's all. All right, that'll be 59. All right. There you are. 59 out of a dollar. All right, that was 59. We'll make 60, 70, 75, and $1. Oh, thank you. Right, sir. Can I help you? Yeah. Uh, oh, let's see. I'd like a couple of cigars. You're late today. It's going to be action. Yeah, when? Tonight. Are you using the boat? Yeah. What time's the job start? I report back at 8. Are you on the boat? No, I'm going to be Could I have two nickels, please? Yeah, sure. Two, here you are, sir. Thank you. These, uh, the guys you wanted? No, it's an Xbox. What's your assignment tonight? Unloading the boats. Where? I don't know. Stage three in operation? No, but it will be. You set up? As soon as we hear from you, we'll be ready. Hey, that's seven cars in a row that landed in the hat. Huh? What time is it, Buck? Uh, 20 to 10. How long do we wear around like this? Oh, so Harry says we should go with him. Hey, uh, can we close that window? Ah, oh, the air will do you good, Buck. It does me cold. I wonder where we're meeting the boat. How would I know? Hey, look. Hmm? More than half the deck and the half. And from ten feet, too. Yeah? That's swell. Funny thing about throwing cards in a hat. Makes a real big difference whose hat you're using. Now, you take Turk's hat, for instance. Oh, I, I... I don't mean this for no knock at Turk, but he's got such a little noggin. If there's ten cards in his hat, it overflows. But Whitey's hat, what a jackpot. He's got a head on him. And... Uh, you gone, Harry? No, not yet. What's with the gun? Ask him. Me? Yeah. And keep your hands out of your pockets. I don't get this. I just finished talking to your old boss, Mac Franklin. Oh? How is Mac? Healthier than you're going to be. What is this, Harry? Franklin called here to see if we got the oil okay. Yeah? And he asked if the guy that drove it down was still around. I said he was. Mac started talking about him. What he said didn't match up with this guy here. Buck was probably a rip. Mac is always ripping. Look, roll up your right sleeve. What for? Because if you're the guy Franklin sent down with the truck, you got a flag tattooed on your arm. Why don't you do like he says? There's no flag on my arm. I had it taken off. You're a liar. Look, this guy's a fink. Are you sure, Harry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's because I don't like finks. Put him in a car. Take him with us to Crawford's Point. Back it up a little. Ah, no, a little more. Yeah, no, that's okay. Try to get up there with the line, tie us off. Huh? All right. Okay, Joy, cut the motors. Okay. Left, left. Yeah, right with you, Harry. Uh, Joy, you can start unloading now. Gotcha. Harry? Yeah. Where's the truck? Right at the end of the dock. Better leave it there. This dock might not hold it. How'd the job go? Oh, great. A little trouble at my end. Oh, what do you mean? Come on down, I'll show you. Show me what? Buck's got him in the car. Huh? That 
last guy you hired. He's a fink. How do you know? Mac Franklin called. He ain't the guy that Franklin sent. Must be a cop. Yeah, that's the way I figure. Buck, the guy's still out? Yeah. Real cold. Yeah. What do we do with him, Slim? Yeah, put him on the boat. When we get out in the bay again, we lose him. Okay. Come on, Buck. I'll give you a hand. Let's go. Hey, what is this? Get on the floodlights, men. Cover the back of the boat. Hey, what's with those lights? Let's blow, Harry. Don't try anything, Wilcox. This whole area is surrounded. Now bring that man you're carrying over here to me. Get that crew of yours up off the dock. You're all under arrest. The entire Wilcox gang was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to long prison terms for the theft of government property. Their roundup brought an end to their career of crime. Agent in charge Medford was able to make the arrests in this case because Special Agent Taylor had planted a microphone outside the window of the Wilcox boathouse. The window he carefully opened on the pretext of getting some fresh air. Special Agent Douglas, listening at the other end on equipment concealed in the rear of the cigar store heard Taylor struck down. The immediate temptation was to go to his aid and make the arrests of Buck and Harry. But that would not have done the job to which these agents had been assigned. The job of breaking up the whole gang. When Special Agent Douglas heard Harry say that they would take Taylor to Crawford's Point, he knew that must be the point of rendezvous for the truck and boat. One telephone call to Agent in Charge Medford took care of the rest of their job. And so... Another case from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation was closed. In the process, you have witnessed what you may regard as the extraordinary courage of one special agent. Actually, that is the day-to-day courage of every agent. For this assignment merely happened to come to Special Agent Taylor. It could have come to any of the others throughout the country. And they would have done the job as willingly and as completely. Would have done it so that it ended as this case did with the arrest and conviction of every criminal. In just a moment, you will hear about next week's exciting case from the files of your FBI... But first, a few words from our Equitable Society representative on the fact-finding chart for fathers and mothers. I'm speaking for nearly 8,000 Equitable Society representatives. Most of us Equitable men are fathers of families. Next week, we will dramatize another case from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. A topical story of crime in far-off Alaska... Its subject, swindling. Its title, The Frozen Frame-Up. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Life Assurance Society's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious. And any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Tonight's program was transcribed, and the music was composed and conducted by Frederick Steiner. The author was Jerry D. Lewis. Your narrator was William Woodson, and Special Agent Taylor was played by Stacey Harris. Last were Tony Barrett, Bill Conrad, Paul Fries, Ed Gargan, George Offerman Jr., and Roland Winters. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Larry Keating speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community, and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time when the Equitable Life Assurance Society will bring you another thrilling story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The frozen frame-up on This Is Your FBI. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. That's Case Closed for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find more from Barry Craig, This Is Your FBI, past episodes of this show, and thousands of other old-time radio episodes at the website relicradio.com.
You can support this and all of the shows through that website as well. If you'd like to help keep it coming every week, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on the link on the website. Your support makes it all happen. Thanks, as always, to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Wednesday with another hour of old-time radio crime on Case Closed. Case Closed.